Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Crowded Out. Today, we're very happy to be joined by Vinny and Mark, and we're going to be talking about the libel reforms. So, Vinny and Mark, would you like to introduce yourselves? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I'll, I'll kick off if that's okay. So, my name is Vinay Reddy. I'm a lawyer at Linklaters. I've actually been heavily involved in benchmark reform for a number of years now. I worked at Barclays for about 10 years, and I was as while well, I was at Barclays, I also sat on the LIBOR Oversight Committee, uh, which gave me sort of good good insights into into LIBOR itself. And I've been quite heavily involved with LIBOR transition or the transition away from LIBOR to be specific, both while I've been at Barclays and while I've been at Linklaters. And thanks, Vinay. And I and I'm Mark Crawford. I'm an associate in the derivatives and structured products team at Linklaters based in London. And I've worked on eyeball related mandates since qualifying and, and most recently have been heavily involved in advising ISDA, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association on their ben benchmark re reform related initiatives. It's a real pleasure to have you guys on. So I think we're going to kick off by asking, so what is LIBOR? Everyone knows that it's a number, but how exactly is it calculated? And what is LIBOR? Thanks. So Maybe I'll kick off and, and, and try and answer this. Um, <clears throat> so the, the London Interbank Offered Rate, or, or LIBOR, is a set of, of various benchmarks that are calculated and published each day across five currencies, pound sterling, um, US dollar, euro, Japanese yen, and Swiss franc, and also across seven different maturities or, or lending periods. So you've got overnight LIBOR, um, one week LIBOR, and then also one, two, three, six, and 12 month LIBOR. So you've actually got 35 different LIBOR rates published daily. Um, and these LIBOR rates are now published by um, the IBA, the Intercontinental um, Exchange Benchmark Administration. And it's regulated by the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. LIBOR was previously published by the BBA, the, Bankers, uh, the British Bankers Association, but we'll come on to, on to that a bit later, I think. Um, so then actually what, you know, what constitute, constitutes these LIBOR rates? Um, so, so LIBOR reflects the, the daily average interest rate at which large global banks can borrow money from each other. So in other words, the cost for banks to borrow from each other. And maybe I'll delve into this in a bit more detail. Um, so at a bit before 11 a.m. London time each morning, IBA asks a panel of contributing banks a question. And the question is, and I quote, at what rate could you borrow funds were you to do so by asking for and then accepting interbank offers in a reasonable market size just prior to 11 a.m. London time? And that question is asked and answered in respect of each currency and each specified unsecured loan maturity. And the bank's answers, their, their estimates, are, are quoted on an annualized basis and sent confidentially to IBA. Um, now, we talk about you know, contributing banks, but who are those contributor banks? Um, membership of the panel is determined annually, and panel positions are, are basically reserved for banks that have a significant presence in the London market. Um, I think there are between about 11 and 18 large banks on the panel at any one time. 
Um, okay, so those contributor banks have sent their responses to IBA. Um, IBA then calculates the, uh, the LIBOR rate pursuant to their published methodology. Uh, and that methodology entails using um, a trimmed arithmetic mean whereby the, the administrator IBA basically discards the figures in the highest and lowest quartile and then averages the remaining numbers. And then what IBA does it is, um, you know, having determined the various LIBOR rates at about midday, um, the entities that are licensed by IBA to publish those rates will then do so. Um, worth noting also that the publishing entities publish the LIBOR rates, but they also publish the rates of the individual contributing banks provided to IBA confidentially. And I'll come on to why this is important um, when we talk about, you know, um, what went wrong with LIBOR in a bit. But that's a kind of an attempt to answer the question of what is LIBOR. Great, so just a quick question. I think most people watching this are undergrads and you know when you read about LIBOR, you read that it underpins how contracts are priced and that it's embedded into firm's operating models, but those things don't mean much to say me, for example. So. How does LIBOR actually affect, say, my daily life or like everybody's interaction with the financial market? How does that affect our own personal finances? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and the answer, I think, is that you know, we care about LIBOR because everyone else does. Um, LIBOR you know, was widely seen as a useful indicator of the interbank market and banks' expectations on interest rates. And because of the contributor bank methodology underpinning LIBOR and the way LIBOR is constructed as this kind of low borrowing rate among large banks, the LIBOR benchmarks um, are used across the world by banks and financial, financial institutions as a kind of a base rate in order to set their own interest rates. So for example, you know, an adjustable rate mortgage might refer to an interest rate of LIBOR plus 4% or you know, a certain amount of basis points. And because of their role as a, you know, a base interest rate, um, LIBOR, you know, how LIBOR is calculated, the, the, the reliability of LIBOR, um, you know, how LIBOR rates move, impacts basically everyone in the financial market. So you know, major international banks providing syndicated loans, um, large corporations you know, needing to raise funds via debt instruments, um, the derivatives trader in a family office trading interest rate swaps or futures, you know, your friend at university with her student loan, um, your mum and dad with their mortgage, your neighbour you know, is taking out a loan to pay some for some renovations on the restaurant they own. You know, essentially, there are hundreds of trillions of dollars worth of outstanding contracts that reference LIBOR or, or are somehow explicitly or implicitly tied to LIBOR. And then alongside that, um, you know, LIBOR is also used in related processes. So we're talking about you know, LIBOR's use in risk and accounting models, or its use as a performance benchmark in measuring returns. And then separately, you know, LIBOR is used in actually non-financial contracts um, in clauses such as you know, overdue payment clauses. So you know, calling LIBOR the world's most important number is not entirely an exaggeration. So it's pretty clear why it's important, but then how did it become this important, right? What made the LIBOR so much more important than other overnight rates, like say in the United States or something? How did it become so predominant? Uh, let, let me try and take this one. Uh, I think 
It has actually, and LIBOR's probably been used since, I could be wrong on this, uh, Rocco, but it's probably been used since the 80s. And it's it's one of those things that has developed a lot by just through custom and convention as well. So what it started off as being the London interbank offered rate, it was used in loans, and then you had derivatives that were hedging those loans. So the derivatives market started using LIBOR, and then the derivatives market continued using LIBOR, not just when they were hedging the loans, but when they were doing sort of other interest rate swaps as well. And that grew and grew and grew. And I think everyone started using LIBOR as the number, whether it's for mortgages or whether it's for every, your systems, your valuations, everyone knew it. It was probably the most familiar benchmark for everyone in the world. And then what happened was while people were using it, they got so accustomed to it that they hadn't really thought about what would happen if there's something wrong with LIBOR or if LIBOR were to go away. People had thought about if, if the screen rate for LIBOR is not available on a particular date for whatever reason, some sort of temporary disruption, then you could have something that sets out what, what will happen in those circumstances. But people hadn't really given it. People all took LIBOR for granted, I'd say. Okay. So, two to three decades. You mentioned something interesting there about LIBOR being used to hedge. So yeah. I know LIBOR is used often to hedge against the level of interest rates. But, and it's a bit of a two-part question, uh, following yeah. from point about how an sure, expert sure. committee, like of usually 11 to 18 banks, determines LIBOR, which makes it very vulnerable to, you know, LIBOR not being... Man LIBOR being manipulated essentially. So why is why is LIBOR an inefficient hedge if it's determined by experts? What goes wrong? What went wrong? Um, I don't know if today or I, I can go, take go this. Go for it, go for it, man. Okay, so uh, this is quite juicy. Um, so I don't want to, you know, <laughs> but um, I think maybe if we, you know, if we, if we start if we go back to 2007, 2008, the financial crisis. Um, so, you know, late summer 2007. Um, so, so, in short answer, is a number of things went wrong, and I'll try and exp explain the background, uh, you know, behind that. So, so we're in late summer 2007. Um, Northern Rock is facing major difficulties, and basically, banks um, were not willing, in the financial turmoil, to take the risk of lending it to each other on an unsecured basis for any length of time, really, beyond a few days. So obviously the interest rates on longer term interbank loans rose dramatically, and the spread, so the difference between the overnight LIBOR benchmarks and the LIBOR benchmarks for longer periods, also increased dramatically and kept increasing over um, the summer of 2007 and, and continued into the autumn and winter. Um, and that was an issue, right? Because as you pointed out, um, if interbank trading in cash was limited to very short durations, um, how were the, the panel banks on the LIBOR panel supposed to work out their cost of borrowing over, say, three months or six months or a year and then submit um, their estimates to LIBOR? And what each panel bank was doing was effectively just kind of guessing and they were being sanguine in their guessing. You know, in fact, considering the severity of the crisis, um, there was a question as to you know, whether LIBOR was being artificially rep you know, repressed by a best guess methodology. Um, but you know who would who you know who was to say the panel bank submissions were inaccurate because you know there weren't any levels of borrowing 
against which the submissions could be benchmarked. So basically, you know, the methodology underpinning the liable rates wasn't really working as it should have. It also wasn't just, you know, the panel banks being optimistic. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, the submissions provided by individual contributing banks are also published. So if the panel banks submitted estimates um, were high, it means that other banks were less willing to take the risk of lending to that bank. And that doesn't really look good for that borrowing bank. So there were you know, indications that panel banks were providing low estimates of their borrowing costs so, so as not to spook the market. Um, so what we had was a kind of a, you know, a benchmark universally used, which was potentially inaccurate. Um, and what's more, we also had you know, governments and central banks relying on the liable benchmarks as an indication of you know, the health of the market. And you know, as a signpost to, to see where you know, the next weak link might, might come from. So that was kind of 2007, 2008, when um, I would say LIBOR's credibility was kind of first called into question. Um, and then following you know, various investigations by financial regulators and public authorities, um, you had, we had what came about was basically manipulation of the LIBOR rates for profit by individuals at certain panel banks. Um, and that was uncovered in kind of 2012, and I think that had been going on for a number of years or over a number of years. And that led to large fines and, you know, a, 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 few, a few prison sentences. Um, and, and then, you know, the, those, those investigations not only uncovered instances of manipulation of the libel rates, but also kind of concluded a number of things to do with the libel rates more generally. You know, one being that, um, there was declining transaction data on which to base LIBOR submissions, which was an obvious issue. Um, that um, you know, the LIBOR submissions were, as we've noted, subject to manipulation by banks, either in order to profit or to, to you know, project, falsely project a, a stronger credit worthiness. Um, and then you know, following from that, basically the, the British Bankers Association, which is then the administrator of, of the LIBOR rates, um, it didn't hadn't implemented the necessary con controls and and had sufficient governance and, and transparency structures around the rates and their calculation so we've got kind of a lack of credibility and a lack of um you know, structural integrity um and and in the uk the the the, the wheatley review commissioned by the exchequer basically re recommended that that libor should be transferred um to a different administrator and in early 2014, IBA became that new administrator. And this did restore some credibility to the benchmark, but, but the transfer of LIBOR's administration didn't change the fact that LIBOR was and is still calculated on the basis of panel bank submissions. And, and panel bank submissions require an active underlying market in unsecured interbank term borrowing. And since the financial crisis, you know, the market has not been as active. Um, in fact, this market doesn't have sufficient depth really to support wholly accurate LIBOR submissions based um, based only on transaction data and and this is because you know following the financial crisis banks have looked at other avenues of financing um, such as bonds and repos so uh, and in addition I suppose the, the unsecured interbank market hasn't really been helped by the rules relating to you know banks liquidity adequacy. So whereby you know, banks are required to hold a greater amount of liquid assets to compensate 
to their vulnerability by reason of holding interbank positions. Um, and so that's where we are now. You know, the FCA has said um, that LIBOR is you know, no longer sufficiently robust to continue as is, and that it, so you know, the, F, the FCA, will stop compelling panel banks to submit rates for purposes of calculating LIBOR after the end of 2021. And so after, after 2021, basically LIBOR's future isn't guaranteed. Okay, so what we've heard from our very preliminary research is that the Bank of England had a working group and the alternative that they came up with was the Sterling Overnight Index Average. So what is it that's different this time? What makes Sonia more robust, more sustainable? What did they change? Sure, maybe I can uh, talk a little bit about that actually, uh, Ananya. So this Sterling Overnight Index Average of Sonia for short has been around for a number of years. And that's essentially the interest rate that banks pay to borrow sterling overnight from other financial institutions and other institutional investors. And the key difference is that it is based on actual transactions. So, and there is a lot of depth of transactions in that interbank or interfinancial institution overnight market. And that that is so essentially you've got a large number of transactions that underpin Sonia. And that means that unlike what Mark was saying in relation to LIBOR, where you don't have that volume of transactions that are underpinning, underpinning the rate that is being produced, here you've got a variety of transactions. Banks send the details of the transactions from the previous day by 7 a.m. The Bank of England checks the data is right, and then the Bank of England publishes, publishes Sonia on a daily basis. And a uh, couple of couple of other things to note. So that's that's a similar approach that's been taken in different jurisdictions. So in the US, for instance, they've gone with the secured overnight for a financing rate, which is the call rate at which banks sort of borrow on a collateralized on a collateralized basis on an, for overnight borrowings. Similarly, in the euro area, we've got the euro short term uh, rate, which is a wholesale euro unsecured overnight borrowing borrowing rate. Uh, the key difference with, between these rates, apart from sort of liquidity and so on, is that unlike LIBOR, you don't have a term rate when you're talking about a Sonia or a SOFA or a Euro short term rate. You're, they're all overnight rates, which means that if currently you're using LIBOR, I don't know, let's say hypothetically using three months sterling LIBOR in a loan, and you want to replace it with Sonia, then it's going to be a very different number because Sonia is an overnight rate. And just, just to explain that, let's assume I am borrowing money from Mark and I say to him, I'll return it to him tomorrow, then there is a particular rate of interest that he's going to charge me. But if I say to him, I'll return it six months later or one year later, then that rate of interest is higher because he's taking greater credit risk because there's sort of, there's, there's more involved as well because you're thinking about the term nature of that, of that loan. And it's similar if you're borrowing money from a bank on a six month versus a 12 month basis and things like that. So, so whereas Sonia is an overnight rate, LIBOR, typically the way they're used in contracts, they tend to be term rates and uh, 
people when they're replacing Libovitsonia will need to think about how to essentially achieve the term component and how to achieve some sort of credit risk component as well because when banks lend to each other there's also a credit risk component if you're talking about a three-month term or a six-month term as the case may be okay so i think compounded sonia has the potential to be much more predictable than libor does and something that came up often was that Sonia has the capability to evolve over time. And that was mentioned in both reports and news articles that we read. But what does that mean exactly? Uh, I guess there are different ways of looking at it. One is, so what's, what's happening now is, you're right, Anonia, people are talking about compounded Sonia. But what, so what happens with a LIBOR rate is a LIBOR rate on the first day of an interest period, you come to, the first day of your interest period and on that day you know what your LIBOR rate for the loan is going to be so you know it in advance or on the first day of your interest period you'll know i don't know let's assume say two percent whereas if you're using currently what people are using in relation to compounded sonia is compounded sonia in arrears so you come towards the end of your interest period you look back at whatever Sonia was for the last three months, let's assume it's a three month period, and then you compound those daily Sonia rate in arrears and you'll know that rate on the end of your, at the end of your interest period. So that's currently the usage of the term sort of, I don't want to call it term Sonia, but the way in which people are replicating the term, the structure of LIBOR when they're using Sonia. But what the, what the Bank of England has been doing is it's considering proposals from different benchmark providers to actually provide a forward-looking term Sonia where there where you will actually know your Sonia interest rate at the beginning of your interest period. So they're looking for instance at what your term Sonia swaps market sets out, like what is the prediction for three months Sonia rates, what is the futures market sets out, and they use the averages of that. To come out with a forward-looking term, Sonia. So that's one way in which Sonia, or term, Sonia, could be developed, or essentially you could evolve to have a term, Sonia. And so, what are like the other issues that the implementation of this reform are facing? Right. So, like whether it be that contracts aren't written to be able to deal with the permanent discontinu discontinuation of LIBOR, right? And then, like, what exactly is the timeline right uh, timeline right now for bringing Sonia on board, and what are the possible hurdles ahead, right? That might extend that deadline further into the future? Sure, so Sonia is already, it's a very liquid rate. It's already being used in a number of instances. It's already on board in, in, in a lot of ways, particularly in the derivatives market, there's a lot of liquidity. But there are a few things, I think, particularly for the smaller institutions where if you're moving from a forward-looking rate to a rate that's compounded in areas, an overnight rate, your booking systems, the way in which you actually reflect that in your treasury systems, et cetera, all of that will need to change. So it's not just as if you're changing your contract, your entire infrastructure for booking that a particular loan, a particular swap, whatever it may be, needs to change. And that, that, that is something that requires some investment in infrastructure and in information technology, et cetera. So that's, that's something that needs to happen. The other very big, challenge or is currently let's assume you've got 
a mortgage that's linked to, let's say, U.S. dollar LIBOR, say you're a, you're a homeowner in the U.S. and you've got a U.S. dollar mortgage. Suppose you move to SOFA, then it's quite possible that the SOFA, the compounded SOFA, may not be identical to your U.S. dollar LIBOR rate. Or there could be some value transfer, essentially. And if you're a homeowner, or even if you're a company or whatever, then you're very likely to feel the effect of that. So moving from a LIBOR-based rate to an overnight risk-free based rate is not a like-for-like move necessarily. There will be some element of value transfer, and that makes it quite challenging because you could have winners and losers. They have people have been trying as far as possible to do things like compounding, adding credit spread, et cetera, to minimize the winning and the losing or minimize the value transfer. But can you absolutely rule out a value transfer when you're moving to a rate that is essentially a different rate? No, you can't. And what do you think of reforms that are being mirrored elsewhere outside of uh, the British reforms of, of the LIBOR? Right. What, what do you think of the reforms taking place in Asia and the United States? So probably, uh, so, so there's been a lot of activity in the U.S. as well around uh, LIBOR reform, particularly for U.S. dollar LIBOR. So just like Sonia is the replacement, it's SOFA, which is short form for the secured overnight financing rate, which is, which is the replacement rate that's been recommended in the U.S. And there isn't, so SOFA is a relatively new rate compared to Sonia. So there isn't as much liquidity in the SOFA market as there has been in the Sonia market now. They've been trying to, the authorities in the US have been trying to encourage more liquidity. And that's something that we're hoping, I mean, people are going to be shifting to SOFA. So again, lots of reforms. I think in, in the Asian market or even, for instance, in uh, the other sort of European markets, so Switzerland, you've got Swiss franc LIBOR, and in Europe, you've got uh, Euro LIBOR and Euro LIBOR. And again, there's been some progress made in identifying overnight rates. Similarly, in Japan, where you've got a yen LIBOR, there's been some progress made in identifying overnight rates. And I think, I think it's probably fair to say that the that the UK and the US have been very sort of proactive in setting out a lot of milestones and targets for market participants to actually be be doing doing a lot of things and telling them what to be doing when to be moving from say LIBOR to a risk-free rate in a different product. And Mark, like do you think that Sonia is gonna achieve the same sort of dominance that LIBOR did in its time? Right? Or will we see like will Will there be some sort of splitting of the market to uh, between like the SOFR more regional overnight rates and Sonia? Like, what's what's the situation there? Well, I think liquidity in the market in the Sonia market already um, is a good indicator that it's you know it's a it's a popular rate that can be used by by many market participants. I also think that you know um, it's important that the market um, you know. Um, adopt a uh, you know adopt a, a, an approach um and and i think that yeah yeah i think you know a kind of a universal approach to sonia or at least um a consistent approach within the market um as to you know how to calculate compound sonia etc is um you know is important for 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 going forward it was really interesting to hear um in starting when 
Mark was talking about how LIBOR is tied to, say, student loans and things like that. So what is the reform and the switching of LIBOR and moving towards Sonia mean for these financial products? Well, I think, um, I think you know, when, when those financial products um, do move across from LIBOR to an overnight rate, um, <clears throat> you know, your bank, if you're, say, you know, um, you have a mortgage with a, a, a bank, you know, the bank will reach out with information or has reached out with information. Um, so there'll be this kind of information process between <clears throat> lenders and borrowers. Um, but as Vinay said, you know, the, you know, there is you know, a risk of value transfer between, um, you know, for contracts that, that are currently based on or reference LIBOR um, to, you know, to referencing an overnight rate. And, and I think the market is trying to adopt approaches whereby that value transfer is minimized. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's, it, it's worth listening to this podcast and um, reading things about this and how it may or may not um, have implications for your, for your borrowing positions. Understood. Thank you both very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Vinny. Thank you, Mark. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks both.